Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of The Leadership Habit, I sat down with Gerald J. Leonard to talk about workplace jazz, nine principles to developing high-performing teams. It was a great conversation with Gerald to talk about what we can learn from performers, from music, to help motivate our teams, inspire our teams, and help them collaborate greater. But let me tell you a little bit before we go into it about Gerald J. Leonard. Gerald J. Leonard, PMP, PFMP, and CIQ coach. And he's the publishing editor, CEO, and founder of the Leonard Productivity Intelligence Institute, as well as the CEO of Turnberry Premier, a strategic project portfolio management and IT governance firm based in Washington, D.C. He attended Central State University in Ohio, where he received a bachelor's in music and later earned a master's in music from the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. Gerald is the author of Culture is the Base, Seven Steps to High-Performing Teams, which was listed on Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the top 15 books on business culture that you need to read today. And today we're going to be talking about his second book, Workplace Jazz, Nine Steps to Creating High-Performing Agile Teams, which was listed on Human Resources Online as one of the top must-read HR books. And Gerald's third book, Symphony of Choices, a business novel, will be released later this year in 2022. But before we go further, here we go, talking about Gerald's second book, Workplace Jazz, Nine Steps to Creating High-Performing Teams. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and I'm so excited to be sitting down with Gerald J. Leonard. And today, we're bringing you a different type of topic. This is going to be a different type of vibe, hopefully a little bit of a music vibe, because we are talking about workplace jazz. And to know more about that is, first, we have to get to know where that started. And so, Gerald, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And if you could, go ahead and introduce yourself to the Leadership Habit audience. We would love to know your story before we really dive in, how music has helped you help teams connect better. Excellent. Well, Gene, thank you so much for having me and for us getting back together to have this conversation. I'm really excited to be here. So how this all started was I was 10 years old. I had played piano for a little while. My sister had a guitar, which I was really intrigued with. She didn't want me to play it. So I would sneak into her room and grab a guitar and play it. <laughs> and that's how this whole thing got started. And so Wait, I have to ask, like, does she still play? Does she still she play? Does not. <laughs> so it's a good thing you did that. <laughs> she realized that she wasn't going to play it anymore. And so, but she let me have the guitar and then she let me have it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what that what, what happened there was I just fell in love with playing the guitar and playing, you know, string instruments. Um, I joined a band later on with some friends of mine, and I haven't talked about this in my TEDx talk. And one of them was a really good guitar player and the guy could play. And I knew I could match what he was doing. So I started playing bass and took, you know, bought me a bass and took lessons. And it was a time where uh, the Lakeland Civic Center had been built. And so we got to see all these great bands and I was really inspired. I started taking lessons. And so, so many things that I have done now in my adult life actually came from those initial experiences of playing music, taking lessons, paying for lessons. Um, getting feedback, getting corrected, learning how to play together, learning how to listen. And that led me through college, through uh, my career. I switched careers and got into IT at a time where if you could spell IT, you could get in. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and picking up the computer was very much like picking up another instrument. What I didn't know was how much music was building the mathematical and logical part of my brain. And so once I got into computers, you know, I, I just I read everything I could get my hands on, and I just took off in it. I did all the certifications. I had my master's by that time in music, and I started noticing while I was playing music professionally and working after having kids, I didn't want to be on the road all the time, so I decided to do something local in the New York City area, and I started noticing that the same vibe and experience of playing in a great ensemble would happen when I was a consultant being on a great project team. It was the same vibe with the team. And so over the years, this whole concept of when I started speaking and things like that, uh, and I started looking at writing a book, this whole thing of combining my worlds, because I was just living in both at the same time for most of my life, um, came together. And so all of my books are, have a musical metaphor, because if you can play the radio, you can understand what I'm talking about. And uh, it's just that straightforward. I try not to be too you know, high level musical from the standpoint that 
it's it's a music book itself, but it's just in using the concept of music and what you've seen musicians do when you see a music group play or whatever that these principles come from. So your book, Workplace Jazz, yes. nine principles for develop or to developing high-performing teams. When you initially wrote that, who was your envisioned reader? Who did you want to pick up that book? Well, at the time I was I had a client that I was working for, and I had actually written my first book, Culture is the Base, with that same client. And you know, we were doing a lot of agile work. And so I wrote it for project managers. I wrote it for people who led project managers and project management offices for them to realize that the teams that they were bringing together, that musicians were more like, like well, not musicians, but um, the workers were more like artists, right? They were much more like artists because nowadays people are coming in and they really work hard at being specialized in their skills. So they learn how to practice their skills. But when they come together, the leader needs to be more like a conductor or the band leader, you know, help the group understand the big intent of the performance and then let everybody use their skills and then show them how to work together. Um, and so it was really written for that group, but it really crosses all you know, different parts of an organization from the C-suite down to um, you know, most of the workers in the organization. And a lot of work today is productivity work, automation, AI, and all those things are replacing you know, the everyday manual labor uh, and manual tasks. And so a lot of the work that's happening today, it's really project-related work and agile type, type, type work. Yeah. Requiring us to think differently, to do differently. And I think yes. it also makes soft skills that much more important. It really right does. Because <laughs> those are the really critical skills that, because you can have hard skills and you can be a really good developer, you can be a really good project manager, you can have a really good writer. But if you stink at these other things, they're going to hurt you. If you're not a good listener, you can be really good at what you're doing, but you can't listen to and take back and interpret it correctly and learn how to work together and support others. That It's all about teamwork. And it's the team that makes things happen. Even though you can have great individual performance, it's really the team. And that's what, it's, that's what Workplace Jazz is all about, is creating high-performing teams the way you would have a high-performing jazz band or orchestra. We're essentially helping you design your band. This is our fun time exactly. to envision, maybe look at our situation a little bit differently yes. and figure out what else we could apply. But before we dive into your book, I really want to talk about, because in our pre-call, I know you and I had talked about this, the neuroscience of music. Yeah. Who, why in the heck should we even use music? <laughs> and actually, no, I asked this because... I'm not sure if you're seeing this in your world, but in my world right now, I am hearing burnout, 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 overwhelm, overwhelm, overwhelm. And music to me has always been something that's helped to shift my mindset. And But you know more of it from really that true standpoint, the neuroscience. Can we talk a little bit about what that even means to someone that might be like, I have no idea. I've never heard someone say the expression, the neuroscience of music. Right. The neuroscience <laughs> of music is that basically, you know, um, it's, it's, it's around us all the time. When you're studying, you know, you think about when you studied in college or when you studied in high school or you studied, a lot of times they'll put calming music on. They may even put Mozart, uh, some music that's very calming because our brains are like a big, you know, like a big machine that oscillates with the frequencies around it. And so if you've ever seen two clocks that are like waving together and they're like in opposite direction and pretty soon, there's a dominant clock and everything starts moving the same direction. That's because of physics. And so our brains are impacted by music from a physical or, or physics or physiological standpoint in which that our, our, our cells, our neurons are all working together and music plays a big part of that. And here's why this, it's so imp, uh, important to me to share this story because of an experience I had later on in life around 2018. I had a, I think we talked about this in my pre-call. I had a major bout with vertigo. And the vertigo wiped out what's called the vestibular system. I was impacted my right inner ear nerve by 86%, which meant I only had 14% capability in my right inner ear nerve. When I went to the ear, nose, and, do and throat doctor, he told me, based off he did the, all the measurements, he, he said, I'm surprised you can even hear that you've been that impacted. But he says, I noticed you walked into the office unassisted. He goes, what have you been doing? I said, well, I have a TEDx talk that I'm getting ready to do. And I've been practicing my bass. I've been practicing music. 
And I realized that after I started practicing bass, because music impacts the brain in such a way that it starts vibrating the brain. And if there's blockages, the brain figures out how to use other neural networks to work around the blockage and repair itself. So he says, oh, you've already been doing your therapy. I said, okay, yeah, I've been practicing. And I said, I'll get ready to do my TEDx talk in three weeks. After having coming home from the hospital with a walker, not being able to walk. And six weeks after that event, I was on stage in Delaware delivering my TEDx talk. I rewrote a little bit of the speech. I rewrote the song that I wrote. I actually recorded with a, with a, a producer with, who worked with Grover Washington and works with Gerald Beasley now. Um, and it's on iTunes called uh, Vertigo, the song I wrote. And I, I love you know, that, that, that tune and what it means to me because it's all about possibilities, but it's the impact. And so in my talk, my, my TEDx talk was about what if practice is the performance, the neuroscience of music. And I share different quotes about that neural, about the neuroscience and how the brain is activated because of music. And I was a kind of a walking billboard for that experience. And I still have, I don't call it a dis- disability. I call it a constraint. I still have a constraint with my vestibular system, but it forced me to figure out how to do more with less. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually made me more productive without having to do all the traveling and everything else that I've been doing before. I am more, probably a lot more productive now than I was before the incident because of, the, because of understanding the neuroscience of, of music and how it's impacted my brain. I love that music, you know, starting your life earlier on, getting in, <clears throat> excited, getting engaging with music. Right then became the thing that saved you down the line. Like that is a pretty powerful story of knowing what became stealing my sister's guitar (laughs) (laughs) turned down to, this is the thing that's actually going to help me learn to walk again. And I I think it's important to share your story as, you know, one of hope, I think of knowing that of how we can potentially leverage or how we can use things. But, you know, again, that there's our own determination, our own willingness that can also help our ability to be resilient and to persevere and to rebuild even when I'm sure when coming back from that hospital and feeling like I have a TEDx talk in three weeks and I am not walking in the same ability, like that would have been so easy to just say, all right, cancel it. I, you know, we're not going to do it. There's no way. And I just have to focus on this if it even happens again. Exactly. Uh, and what was really interesting is my doctor told me that if I had not been a musician, it would have taken me two years to get back on my feet. Oh, wow. And that was the impact of music. And, you know, but here's the interesting part of the concept. And what, and I wrote the book Workplace Jazz after that incident. And I, because I was so moved by the power of music and it, that you don't have to be a musician to experience all the benefit. I think it's what I the way I write the book and where I shared in the book is really understanding the principles behind the way musicians operate individually and, and collectively. You know, I started off talking about, you know, the improved principle, right? Yeah, but let's the, dive into the principles. Yeah. Because so, the book has nine principles. And I'll just and hit on when, a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. We're going to hit on a few. And I'm curious, what do you want them to be able to do as a result? We're going to talk about a few. We're not giving away everything. You can right. check out the book. But what do you want that reader to be able to do as a result of hearing these principles? I want people's minds to, to be opened up to, to the various possibilities of what they can learn from watching their favorite performers, whether it's uh, whether it's you know Steely Dan or whether it's Michael Jackson when he was alive and uh, whoever it was, just okay, he has the skill, but you know I I have the ability to have some of the same attributes. I may not be able to sing like him, but I can have the same joy and same attributes because if I learn some of these principles, but I can also build really great teams, teams that really work well together and perform well together. Because the way I look at it is, again, when I'm working with my clients, I look at them as an audience. Most of the time, I'm talking to the people on the front row. But I always have in mind as a performer that there are people in the balcony and in the back row. And those are people that are not in the room with me. And so when when I'm designing a performance, I have to perform for those in the front row. But I also have to make sure that the people in the back row have a positive experience. And many times as, as, as you know, project managers or, or technical people or people in business, 
We don't think that way. We just think we got the person in front of us, we deal with their issues, and then we implement the project and it fails because we don't get buy-in from the audience or we don't get buy-in from the people in the balcony in the back. But if you come into it thinking as a musician of, okay, I'm getting ready to deliver a performance and I have you know, the, the cheap seats and I have the expensive seats, right? And I have the green room seats. Well, if I consider everyone as a stakeholder and really consider those people in the back, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to be doing the heavy lifting and really living with the solution, the product, the service, updating the process or whatever you're going to be delivering. And they're going to either kill it or embrace it. And if you perform it in a way and roll it out in a way that they can embrace it, then they're going to establish it and they're going to pick it up and roll with it because they see the benefit for them. And so I really want people to walk away from this book, getting these concepts. And, and, and for each one of them, I talk about the neuroscience because I want them to realize that it's more than just, you know, a, a skill that you were born with. It's actually something that we can develop. It's actually something that we can learn and that, our, that every one of us have of the brain that can can um, can activate and, and leverage these, these skills. See, now you're making me feel like, and maybe this is because I've always wanted to be a performer. So now this is my opportunity to look <laughs> at life as if I am on that stage. Exactly. And I think it's you made a very important distinction, and I liked I like the metaphor of thinking about it. You know, as if you're playing to your audience. It's not just the front row. It's the people in the balcony. It's the people in the green room. I mean, heck. If I was at a concert and I felt that, you know, I just was at a concert on Saturday, it was so fun to finally go back and see a live show. But if I felt, because I was not front row, and if I felt like they weren't addressing addressing me in the middle, that would make me so frustrated. And so, hey, for right now, think about what it takes to wow your audience. And we'll do that by talking about workplace jazz, the nine principles to developing high-performing teams. Now, Gerald, one of the principles that we, we had talked about in the pre-call from the book was improvement. Yes. Improvement, improvement, improvement. What does that mean? Right. It means practicing. It means deliberate practicing. It means becoming, you know, getting on a journey of mastery in your skill. Whether you're a writer, whether you are a speaker, whether you are an analyst, whether you are a developer, it means practicing. It means practicing with a purpose, and it means deliberate practice. And here's what I mean. When I started playing music, um, you know, I, I got to a point where I could play and I could listen to something and I could play by ear. But to do some of the things that I was hearing other musicians, especially when I got into jazz and classical, do, I was like, I don't have those skills. So I had to go and find a teacher. Now, I was the youngest of six back in the 60s, 70s. I'm giving away my age, but uh, which is fine. But... <laughs> But the interesting thing was I had to go do chores and mow lawns and do other things to make money to go find a teacher to pay the teacher to teach me how to get better. Wow. That is a lot of determination for someone when you're young, right? To say so I'm like 12, 13 years old. Yeah. And so that so what I learned from that was I found a really good bass teacher who really gave me a lot of techniques and skills and and ways of thinking, and it made me better. I never forgot that lesson. So I've always, throughout my entire career, have had a coach, had a mentor, had someone that I went into my pocket and paid good money to, to help me learn how to get better. And because of that, you know, I'm the CEO of two companies. I have one of the highest certifications in project management. Um, I'm working on my third book. I've been interviewed by Jack Canfield. In fact, Jack and Patty are one of my coaches. Um, Dr. Paul Shealy from Learning Strategies, who deals with whole brain learning and neuroscience, is one of my coaches. And so I still have a team of coaches that I work with now. So So once you improve and you get to that point where you're really good at what you do, guess what? When you walk into the meeting of a concert, you forget everything that you just learned. And here's why. <laughs> and here's why. Because do you think a squirrel running across the wires thinking about, oh, let me do this. No, he just runs across the wire. Because once you've practiced it, you've embedded it into your cerebellum and, and you just know it. You, you know how to play that note. You know how to play that style. So now the goal is, how can I play it in such a way that makes the team better? 
So if I'm a leader and I and I I'm reading all the John Maxwell books and I'm working on leadership and I'm getting mentored as a leader, when I go into the meeting, I forget about everything that I've just learned and I go now, how can I take what I've learned and how I'm responding and focus on the larger performance and focus on my teammates? How do I leave my ego at the door? Any great music musical group, they're going to be they're going to leave their ego at the door. And they're going to focus on the song, who's going to solo, and how can I make them sound good? Yeah. Because it's knowing that I'm, you know, if you're, I love the, you know, there's the designation of what someone is going to do in a band, but then there's how can I, that collective interest, how can I support you and your betterment? But let's go back to improvement because, you know, it's that piece of being willing to invest, but where do you think people are really missing that mark. Because I think there's that, you know, from my perspective, we're both like, you know, coaches, sometimes people are like, I don't know if I need a coach. Why do I need a coach? And so they're a little reluctant to see the value of maybe having that other person. So when you think about improvement, whether it's a coach, whether it's a mentor, whether it's some other support system, why do we need that? And where do you think that resistance comes from? I think it comes from a lack of understanding of the value. Right. Yeah. I wrote an article for um, for my website, and I actually wrote another article with a similar title for PM World 360, which is an online magazine. It's like the second um, uh, online magazine for project management. And the title was "The Highest Paid People in the World Love Feedback." And I list like ten athletes that over a period of time made about six billion dollars. Wow. And it was like, well, why did they make why did they make six billion dollars? Because they love feedback. Because even at the elite level, they still had a coach. Because they knew if I could just re- reduce my putt or my golf by a couple of strokes, I'd win the Masters. Or if I could shoot and be a little bit more accurate in my basketball, I would win the championship. Or if I could drive the car a little bit straighter, or if I could hit the guy this way, I would I would win the Golden Gloves. They knew that they had to improve by inches. And most of us, when we get, we finish high school, college, our master's, we feel like we've arrived educationally. We may read a book a year if we're lucky. <laughs> and we're just kind of going through and getting it because now we're like, we're done. And not realizing that to really get the, the marrow of the, the greatest things out of life, it's that continuous improvement and pushing yourself towards mastery that you really gain the benefit. And so when you don't understand the value that that's going to bring to your life and the freedom, because when you're an expert of an, you, when you become an expert of experts of experts, then you get all your time back because now people will put you on retainer just to have access to your knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. That's, and that's pretty powerful right there. I mean, to have that. And you're touching on like that next principle of willingness for feedback, which, you know, I don't know why when you were talking, I think about when I started my coaching practice and because it goes back to ego, right? Understanding yeah. that what we know today may not be what's relevant today and or in the future. And I'm going to say this and anyone la- listening might actually laugh at me, but I remember building my website 10 years ago and the mobile version was a little not great. And I remember putting out a message on social being like, do I really need to care if there's a mobile page? And so many people were like, yes, 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 yes. But this is still a time when people actually weren't. Most of the time was still spent on coaching pages through a desktop platform. But I can't tell you, A, how glad I am for that feedback. B, how happy I am that I'm not trying to prove that I'm the smartest because I would have missed one of the most obvious things had I held on to what I thought I knew in that moment. But exactly. can we talk about ego? Because what happens in a jazz band or in any band when well, someone has too much ego? It, well, well, more likely what happens is, one, they don't invite the guy back. <laughs> 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 Two, the audience can tell because the performance stinks. Because, you know, you can't play music and have an attitude with the other performers. Because music, more than just being a mechanical operation of getting all the notes right and playing in tune, it's a spiritual connection. It's, a, it's an emotional, relational connection. 
And if you enjoy the people that you work with and you're friends with the, the, the people on stage that you're working with and you like them, it's going to come through. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be engaging. It's going to connect. You're going to connect at a much higher level. You're going to connect at a spiritual level. Here's something I learned about the neuroscience of, of, of speaking, and which is, in my, my, in my assessment, it's the same thing as the neuroscience of music. Is that and I and I did a certification in neuroscience with Doctor. Um, um, she wrote the book. I just her name just went out of my head. She wrote the book Conversational Intelligence. Uh, Judith Glazer. She passed away a couple of years ago uh, from from cancer. But I did uh, for two years. I did a certification. So I read everything that she wrote. I read tons of white papers and go through the process, write papers and stuff like that for the certification. But one thing she says is, when we start a conversation within zero point zero seven seconds. There's a chemical reaction between our brains, whether we're co-located in the same room or we're virtual and we're across the world. You know, within 0.07 seconds, if you're going to enjoy that conversation. Wait, it's that fast? It's, it's that, that fast. fast? It's that like, fast. I, I've heard something chemical, where like... It's a chemical reaction. Okay, you're blowing my mind right now, Gerald, because I can't forget who, or I can't remember who had brought this up, but I remember it in speaking that you know, your audience will determine within the first three seconds whether or not they want to actually listen or the leader, but it's actually faster than that. It's even faster than that. And it's that. chemical? It's that, chemical. That's what you're telling because me? Mo- because most of our conversations and most of our experiences are chemical reactions. We're having a great conversation right now. We're enjoying the conversation. If they put us on a um, a, a scanner to scan our, 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 our neurochemical reaction, they're going to find that both of our brains are producing serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and GABA, which are like the feel-good drugs where you feel like, man, I really enjoyed that. I like that conversation. This was fun. Well, what made it fun? It was the, it, well, it was the experience. Well, what, was, what gave you that experience? It was the neurochemicals of that positive neurochemical that, that you experienced. It's the same reason when you get a phone call and as soon as you hear the person's voice, your neck tenses up. Because it's like, oh, I, I was dreading this call. So what? why did that happen? Because your body starts producing cortisol and adrenaline. Oh, my gosh. And, you, and, 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 and all of your, you know, the blood is moving in the wrong direction and, and your body's getting tense and you feel it. And it turns out to be a horrible phone call. Or you, it, it was uncomfortable or the meeting was uncomfortable. And we as leaders have the ability to control that. Because if we understand the neuroscience of conversations, we understand the neuroscience of music. We know we can do things to come into a meeting and create fun, joy, you know, a, a great atmosphere, which will then start producing in everyone who's participating's brain, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine. And they're going to walk away with a great experience saying, man, this is a great company. This is a great meeting. I love working for this place. I don't know why, but I'm having a great time. Oh my gosh. But- I love if anyone is watching this on video, they probably just see my mouth open. <laughs> Being like, I don't know why, you know, I never thought about it like that. Really thinking, you know, and when you said it, right, someone calls you and if you think it's going to be, you anticipate that, or even sometimes for me, it could be seeing someone's name in my email. Yep. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to open this. I don't even know. And it might not even be anything, but it does initially set off that stress or, you know, the stress response, the anticipation, the anxiety. And then sometimes I, you know, don't even look at it for a little bit because I'm telling myself it's going to be maybe worse than what it is. Exactly. But I am, my mind is blown right now, Gerald, with what you're sharing, because even thinking about that, that reaction that I just had to a comment to take that back to the workplace. And if you're a leader and thinking you want your team to be motivated, Heck, you have to be very mindful of this instant like chemical reaction that occurs. And I know we're going to go back to the book, but I'm curious, do you have any tips for them on how to maybe make sure they're starting their meeting in the right course to be able to invite them into the conversation? (laughs) I actually have have a whole section in the book that talks about it and 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 it's exercises and something that I've done in different meetings that can really pull your team together. Even when you pull a team together, you're thinking, ah, this is going to be kind of rough. Okay, let me do this exercise and get everybody on the same page. Yes. Okay. Uh, like, because that's, you know, I think that's just one of the places we think we forget. We forget that we're talking to humans that actually want to know what's my time worth. Are you telling me it now? 
Crosscom is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crestcom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crestcom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crestcom.com. But going back to the, the principle of willingness for feedback, because I've interviewed quite a different, you know, quite a few different guests on the on the podcast, but there's still one area, I'm going to call it maybe an industry, that I think is much better at hearing feedback than any other area. And those are typically people that have a musical or performance background. For yeah. them, it's kind of like with feedback is, that's part of the job. But yet, when you get into the corporate cultures, you walk through those doors, feedback becomes this thing that we avoid, we're afraid of it. Why right. do you think it is, why do you think that maybe performers have been able to have a better relationship with feedback than maybe the traditional like corporate or small business employee? Because as, as a performer, whether it's the, the visual arts or, you know, writing or whatever, or the musical arts, singing, feedback is how you get better. Because, you know, Willie Jolly, who's a top speaker in the world um, with uh, the National Speaker Association, he, he, he would say to me, if you're, in the, if you're in the frame, you can't see the picture. If I'm sitting in the frame as a part of the picture, I can't then go outside and see the picture because I'm in the picture. So, there's, so I, I naturally have blind spots. So if I really want to see what I look like, I got to take a picture, I have someone take a picture, or someone tell me because I can't see it myself. And as a musician, as an artist, as someone who's who who has a, found a craft that they love, they want to get better at, who are willing to hire a coach or a teacher, you desire, you want to know what you're doing wrong. You want to know because you don't want to keep practicing something that's wrong because then you, that that practicing makes it permanent. Yeah. So if I'm practicing something wrong and I'm making it permanent, I'm permanently going to be playing it wrong. But if I learn and I'm open to feedback and I figure out how to play it right and I practice, now I'm practicing it correctly, I permanently make it correct. But the only way I can do that is through feedback. And so, you know, that's why I, as a kid, I learned to go earn money, find a teacher, pay for lessons and say, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I wanted to hear. I wanted you to tell me, how did I do this? Because I wanted to get better. And once I started learning that and I started seeing myself improve, the ego went away. It was like, okay, you know, I don't care what it looks like. Tell me what I'm doing because I know if I figure it out and I get told what I'm doing wrong and I'm shown how to do it right, then I'm going to be able to practice it correctly the first time and not embed it in wrong and then you have to relearn it. And I think what happens is because if you're not in one of those fields or, or, or have picked up a hobby like that and you haven't learned that internal lesson, then you think I always have to be right. Because in corporation and corporate, it's like, well, you know, if, if you are told, if you're given feedback and you're making a mistake, that's bad. Oh, I must have been. And so you always think you have to do it perfectly. And that's impossible. Wait, so and then that, you're, what's, what's the musical, if you, what's a performer's response to that? If, you know, knowing that perfection is rampant in so many workers, how, how did you as a musician or a performer ever get over, you know, that perfection? may not always exist like how do you get over that to get up the courage well, to perform like because you're well, you, human you, you yeah, know the well, mistakes are gonna happen yeah, no you, you you realize that that um and again that's kind of why i did my tedx on practice is the performance is that you know how you practice is how you perform and and it's not that when you see a professional and it looks flawless 
It's not that they haven't made a mistake. And at their standard, I'm sure they've done some things that are like, oh, that was wrong. I did that badly. But there's, they, they've practiced and embedded the best practices so much in their subconscious that it looks flawless to us. But they've learned, okay, that's just a part of the process. And so they've, they've learned to practice to a point where they know it's never going to be 100%. It's not going to be perfection, but it's going to be the best that I can give. And so you learn to, one, not beat yourself up over that, but you also learn to practice to the point where you can't get it wrong. And if you get that. it wrong, you're able to recover so quickly that the folks out in the audience don't even know that you made a mistake. And I think that's, you know, I love that you're driving home that piece because a lot of people, I don't think, realize the role that practice plays and why you're seeing what you're seeing. We assume that somehow they took a magic, you know, pill that brought them to success without the, you know, the resilience, the dedication, the one step at a time, the consistent and continuous rehearsal. I know in your work, in my work, all it is, is for me, for you, I'm sure like preparation, constant practice. And because I want to make sure I do a good job. And that means that I got to own my stuff. But right. yet some people are like, Chen, hey, that seems so natural. I'm like, I'm not superhuman. I right. just practice. You know, when right. you bring it seems that natu- back. It seems natural because you've been, you've practiced it and worked on it so much that it's just a part of who you are now. And I still goof up plenty. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the part about it is, is that you, we accept the fact that we're never going to deliver a 100% perfect performance, but we we also enjoy the process because you know what I, one of the things I talk about my TEDx talk and I think I talk about in a couple of the books is that as a musician you're spending ninety five percent of your time practicing even as a professional musician let's say you are you are in a professional orchestra and you're playing let's say eight or nine concerts a week when you take how much time that is compared to how much time you have to do everything else and sleep and live and so on and practice or whatever. You're spending only 5% of your time on stage. Wow. The rest of the time that you spend is all practice. Preparation of practice, after practice, or practicing. The rest of the time, you're only going to be on stage 95% actually in the performance. And and of those eight um, rehearsals or whatever, only four or five will be actual rehearsals. I mean, performances. The rest of them will be rehearsals. So you're still practicing. So the whole idea is that if you don't fall in love with the craft and the the idea of practice and getting better, then you're going to be miserable because if you make a mistake in the performance, oh, I wasn't no good on this and that, and you beat yourself up and you, you, we lose the joy of why do we even start this in the first place? Yes. The joy piece, right? That the joy takes away. Well, and I think we can, and even coming back with a lot of performers, feedback is so beaten not beaten in, but like just it's in the standard part of doing that's the line of business. Exactly. And understanding if we could just take that rule and say, this is what leadership is. It's yes. not perfection. I don't know who's taught you that it's perfect, but you're in the business of people. And we're all way too complex for someone to find a one size like perfect thing without, you know, continuously getting new actions, new experiences, engaging, right. making mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you, how do you respond as a musician? What if someone came up? Because I know some people, there's a greater, again, sensitivity in some workplaces because of that reluctance or kind of avoidance around feedback. So what happens, Gerald, when maybe you do get the feedback that uh, isn't what you wanted it to be? What, how do you advise people to, you know, find a way to create meaning or to still be willing to feedback? to receive feedback, even though they might want to shut down and close yeah. off for the future. I remember listening to a program from a gentleman named Steve Scott, and he gave a great example of um, how, to, how to take feedback. He says, you, the way you need to take feedback is just imagine you're walking on the beach and someone walks up to you and splashes you with a cold bucket of water that he just got from the ocean. It's salty. It's cold. You know, if it got in your eye, it's going to sting. You know, but, you know, but once you kind of get over the shock of that, you look in the bucket and you start looking around and you find a couple of pieces of gold. Or you find a piece of jewelry that 
that, and it's and it's actually really really valuable. He goes, that's the mindset we have to take feedback with. When we get feedback professionally, when you get feedback, it feels like somebody threw a bucket of cold water in your face that is salty. Yes. Right? And if you don't close your eyes fast enough, it stings. And yeah. it stings for a couple of days. It stings for an hour or two. Your, your ego's hurt. I mean, it really hurts. Yeah. But if you take that bucket that they used and look into what they were saying or what they recommended, you're going to find some goal that's going to change your life. And that's going to be the thing. I remember being, I remember when I was in college, I did my master's and I was actually sick. I remember having a call and I was working with my bass teacher. His name was Frank Proto. He was the bassist for the Cincinnati Symphony. And I came in and I played this, this, I don't remember what it was, but I played this piece, this classical piece for him. And he stopped and just started yelling at me. I'm like, dude, I'm sick. He goes, you know, do you think you're not going to be sick if you play in a professional symphony? Do you think I not? I don't get on stage in every single concert. Everything's perfect. He goes, I don't care if you if you come in here to perform, then you come in here to perform. I'd never forgot that lesson. I think that's a really powerful lesson because so you know at that level, it doesn't matter if you're sick or whatever. You're paid to come in as a professional and perform. And that's what I had. That's what I needed to do. And I've never, I never came back into one of his lessons, not being prepared, no matter, I mean, I could have been like, you know, flu, the whole nine yards shivering. It's like, no, we're going to give it everything we got. My gosh, picture if all of us showed up that way, like, Hey, I'm just going to still come, but I'm going to commit to it. Not just being a warm body. I'm actually going to commit to being part of the creation. So we talked right. about two of the principles so far are, need for our own improvement and our ability to be willing to receive the feedback. But that might bring us into, you know, our own positivity. What did you mean by thinking about it through that lens? Well, the whole idea behind positivity, again, is, you know, um, I think in my book uh, for the positivity, I talk about uh, some research that was done with students who do math. And they had two groups of students and uh, one group did really well at math. And the other group didn't do so good at math. And they measured just their positivity and the neurochemicals. And the one group that was doing well, they were very positive about doing that. Another group didn't like it. So they were very negative about it. So they could tell the different chemicals that were being transpired, right? The, the, either the adrenaline or the dopamine, serotonin, all the positive neurochemicals. And then so the, the kids who didn't like it thought that the kids who loved it were natural at it. But what they, when they did the research and interviewed them, they hated it just as much as the other kids, <laughs> except they just decided, you know, I'm going to have to learn how to do this. So I'm going to embrace math. I'm going to go back home and I'm going to practice my homework. I'm going to do the homework. Then I'm going to rip up my answers. And I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it until I, okay, now I got it. Okay. Okay. Now I, I'm getting, oh, I, oh, I got this. So now they go to take the test. It's like, oh, I got this. But they've, re they've rehearsed it. They've practiced it. They've, they've really worked on it. And the kids who didn't, they, well, they didn't. And so it was still hard for them. And so they just thought that the kids that were good at it and were positive about it, that they were doing it because they were just natural. And it wasn't the case. They were good at it. And they had a positive attitude about it because they worked at it. And they developed that skill. And, and again, I think it, it goes back to the principle of positivity of a, that that skill and i call it a skill because again if you in, in the composition of intelligence the neuroscience we have something called upregulating and downregulating upregulating is positive hey i'm encouraging you i'm with you let's go you know i'm on your side downregulating is i can't stand you you get on my nerves oh you know i, I can't wait to get out of here and we have these conversations in our head so again, imagine going to a concert and the musicians are sitting on stage and they're going, they're looking at the other musicians going, man, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't stand these guys. Why am I doing this? I mean, just that conversation alone, what kind of concert do you think you're going? Do you think you're going to enjoy that concert? Yeah, I think I'd walk out probably before they even started. Because <laughs> you're like, something's not right here. These, this, this is, the, the, the notes are correct. The timing's correct, but there's something off. Yeah. But if you go to another concert where these guys 
hey man, I can't, man, I can't, I, I, I can't wait to be here. I've been thinking about this all day. I, I can't. You know, I'm excited to hear your solo. Um, they're just there. They're upregulating. They're positive. Well, that's going to become infectious across the group, and they're going to perform like that. They're going to enjoy themselves, and you're going to walk out. You're going to enjoy yourself. It's going to be a transformative, emotional, musical experience. And it's simply the only thing that was different was their attitude. And so how do you get someone? Because we know, especially right now, you know, burnouts, again, rearing its ugly head. It's going to be real easy, I'm sure, in many different team environments or organizations for people to feel really burnt out, right? Negative. There might be layoffs coming as a result of, you know, the economy and global changes. So what tips or techniques do you have to be able to manage and maintain positivity when stuff is just not going well? As a team leader, you should be focused on three things. And that is to model, to coach, and to care. If you model the, if you say, okay, this is how I want my teams to perform. This is the level I want us to perform at. Well, then you have to come in performing at that level. So then you give them a model. And when you give them a model, you have neuroscience is going to kick in again. It's called mirror neurons. We all have mirror neurons. If I smile and I'm like, you know, or I start laughing, most like, likely somebody else will smile or they'll start laughing or they'll like, they'll just cheer up, right? Why? Because you're seeing me and instinctively, Without even thinking about it, you start smiling. It's like walking. It's like walking down the grocery store, and someone sees you. You catch each other's eye, and they smile. What do you do? You don't. You don't frown back at them, unless you, there's something else going on. If it's natural, you're going to smile back. You're like, "Hey, good to see you too." Right? right. Well, that's the mirror neurons. That's how animals learn from their moms, and 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 how the pups learn from the from their moms to. To, to do the things that they need to do. It's mirror neurons. We have, it's, it's like at the lowest level of being a, a human being. So if I model what I'm looking for my team to do or be, then I give them something to look at and mimic. And then I coach. So instead of dictating, pushing, punishing, or pulling, I coach them. I ask them a lot of questions. I get them to think about it because now they're seeing my example. They're seeing I'm leading the way by just modeling, not trying to lead, but just modeling for them what the behavior and the, and the standards that I want within the organization or, or, or how I want things to go. But then as I'm coaching, I also then care because maybe there's, there's something going on with them and they're having a hard time modeling or being coached because they got some family issues or they're, someone just passed away or something else has happened to them or they're dealing with this challenge. But by getting in and doing all three, I'm giving them an example. I'm coaching them along as to, to follow that example. And then I'm getting even deeper to care about them. And so, again, you have a way to, to actually execute on how do I create a positive environment. And one of the exercises I talk about in my book uh, around this area is called uh, the rules of engagement. And it's something I picked up from the conversational intelligence. And it was a way of of getting a team together and identifying each other's core values and realizing how many of those core values are much more alike than different. And I did that with a team. And when we were done, they realized that they were so much more alike than different and it changed the entire project. Yeah. Because now everybody came in going, wow, I know you. I see you. I see, exactly. <laughs> I see you. I know you. You know, you're like me. We, we value the same things. And so, there was this, the walls, whatever walls were there just dropped. And then dopamine, serotonin, all that stuff starts flowing. And the teams are like, oh, you know, how you doing, man? I can't wake up. It gets all emotional. Everybody's all happy. Now let's go out to dinner. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And they start hanging out on the weekends together. And it works. Yeah. Well, and the opposite of that, you know, that mirroring effect, uh, it's if you're modeling a very negative attitude or maybe a really short way, uh, like, cause I sometimes have watched leaders and like, you've got to be kidding me that you talk to your team like that. Sure. Um, and, and, the, and the team models that. Yeah. Then they just do it, of, to and, each and other. do it naturally because of mirror neurons. 
That's, you know, and I, I've heard of it, I think it's, as it's called as entrainment, our tendency yes. to entrain to someone else. If we're not being mindful of how we're showing up, then we entrain to someone else at that maybe subconscious level that, and I guess maybe it would be authority or the person that's speaking the most or blank, but we all do it. We just yes. may not realize that we do it. Exactly. I mean, see, now, and I wish so many people knew that because it's, it's not so much of no, it is. It's everything. So much of how your team shows up is a reflection of how, how you show up. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. So if you, if you want your organization to be learning and growing and excited about the mission, then they need to see you learning and growing and excited about the mission and then coaching them to become likewise and then caring for them if they're struggling with that. Yes. Well, I, oh gosh, I'm sad that we have to wrap up our podcast. We've only talked about three, but I mean, things that have stood out to me, right? Like looking at your workplace as a performance, this is your opportunity to be a rock star. But then understanding that it's all about continuous improvement and being open to feedback and walking the walk, like being positive, setting the precedent. And, but I know that we were going to talk about a few others, but this is where everyone's going to have to go out and pick up a book, nine or workplace jazz, nine principles to developing high-performing teams. Gerald, uh, I'll say Gerald J. Leonard as your full name in case you're going to Google. How do people get in touch with you? Well, they can come to one of my new websites, uh, an online magazine I started a couple of years ago, and it's called Productivity Intelligence Institute. And there you'll find a store, you'll find books, you'll find my interview with Jack Canfield, uh, a ref- endorsement with Dr. Paul Shealy, and a bunch of things that I'm doing. And I'm publishing articles on there on a weekly basis around the, the topics of you know becoming productive, productive intellectually, you know, basically just how do you use your whole brain to become more productive where you're less stressed out, getting more done and you're enjoying life, but you're, and you're working the way we were designed and created to work and really enjoying the process. Oh my gosh, this is, you are the last or the only person I've ever said that's told me that I can be a rock star today. I know you didn't say it in those words. I just, I heard what I wanted to hear. That's, okay. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> this what I meant. This is finally my chance. <laughs> no, Gerald, and I know that they can go over and check you out the Productivity Intelligence Institute. I know you're also going to be coming up with a third book, but I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for, I mean, you caused mouth drop moments so many times by talking about understanding the neuroscience of how we communicate, how music can play with that. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with the Leadership Habit audience. We are so grateful to have you. I'm grateful to be here. and Thank you for asking me to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, share this with your friends, help them learn different ways that they can approach leadership. And of course, if you want to connect with Gerald J. Leonard, you can head on over to productivityintelligenceinstitute.com. There you can connect with him. You can find other valuable resources that he has. And if you found that you loved this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service. Until next time.